Tonight we're going to explore the ultimate escrow closing. The ultimate escrow closing. We're in Revelation chapter 5. Now, just to review a little bit from chapter 4, we had the opportunity to enter the throne room of the universe. I don't know about you, I've always been fascinated with command posts, command centers, and so forth. I've spent most of my 30-year executive career in corporate boardrooms of all kinds. I had the privilege of being in NORAD, the hardened site, or was hardened by in its day. It's no longer considered hardened. In Colorado Springs, I've been in emission control at Houston. I've been in Langley, Fort Meade, and, and the fourth basement at Omaha, etc. So I've always had a fascination for power centers, control centers. And it interests me that, as you realize, what we're talking about in chapter 5, 4 and 5, is that we're entering the throne room of the universe and more. Kind of exciting package. Let's take the first verse. John says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside and sealed with seven seals. And this, of course, launches us into a speculation of of books and scrolls. You and I think of a book which is formally called a codex. But uh, prior to the second century, books were typically in scrolls, in rolls. I think most of you are probably sensitive to that. It was later that they um, took the pages, made them pages, bound them as what we think of as a book, which is formally called a codex. Of course, many books in the Bible. It's an interesting study sometime to make a list of the various books that are alluded to in the Bible. We, of course, have the Book of Life. We've all talked about that, called Thy Book in some places. The Book of the Covenant, Exodus 24. The Book of Generations, uh, Genesis 5 and elsewhere. Book of the Law, Exodus 20 and what have you. In fact, the Torah collectively could be called the Law. Book of Curses in Numbers 5. The Book of Wars of the Lord, Numbers 14.21, always fascinates me. It makes an allusion to the Book of the Wars of the Lord. I'd love to know more about that. And then again, maybe I wouldn't. Uh, um, the book of Chronicles of Judah and Israel, of course, we're familiar with. And uh, we're going to talk about a book of purchase later, a little later here in a few moments, uh, Jeremiah 32. It's interesting that in the image of the throne of God in Daniel 7, one of the main features of that passage in Daniel 7, in the middle of that chapter we find Daniel also is treated to a vision of the throne of God, which has many similarities to what we're dealing with here, some differences we'll talk about. But it, there it also makes the point that the books were opened. The books were opened. Now, it might be helpful in visualizing what's going on here to know a little bit about these scrolls. Typically, they were done with papyrus. One of the dominant uh, industries in the ancient world was that industry from Egypt. They're basically built in 8 by 10 sheets and joined horizontally. They're typically written in narrow 3-inch columns with about 2.5 inches at the top and bottom margins, about 3 quarters of an inch between columns. If you've seen any of these in Israel, like at the Shrine of the Book, and you know what I'm talking about. They're typically rolled then on a wooden roller. To give you some feeling for this, the Book of Jude and 2nd and 3rd John really are just one sheet. But uh, Romans is about 11.5 feet long, uh, Mark about 19 feet, John about 23.5 feet, Matthew 30 feet, Luke and Acts 32 feet. Book of Revelation itself would be about 15 feet if in, in one of these forms, just to give you a feeling of these things. Bulrushes typically grew about 15 feet high, about 6 feet were underwater, and they were about as thick as a man's wrist. And what they basically did, they extracted the pith with a sharp knife, cut it in very thin strips, and uh, laid rows vertically and horizontally, and then moistened it with Nile water and glue, pressed it, and then smoothed one side with pumice, pumice stone, 
and beat it with a mallet, and that's the way they made papyrus. Now, the front side, which had the horizontal grain, was called the recto, where the writing was normally done, and the back side, the vertical grain, because it had the grain going the wrong way in a sense, was the verso. A sheet that was written on the back had the name of a pistograph. That is a sheet written from behind. This was very unusual because it was rougher. Now, it turns out that when you have one of these written within on the backside, the implication is that it's a will or a testament or a title deed, if you will. And that is the view of most conservative Bible scholars, is that what we're dealing with here is a, a legal document, and it's often referred to in the commentaries as the title deed to the earth. As the story unfolds, you'll see why we have that picture. But I've discovered something kind of interesting. If you read the ancient records, it turns out that a Roman will was sealed with seven seals. And I think that's interesting. Both Augustus and Vespasian left such wills, and they were sealed with seven seals. So I think that's kind of interesting. But clearly we have the book of the world's destiny. And I remind you of Amos chapter 3, verse 7, where God tells you that the Lord will do nothing but that which he reveals to his servants, the prophets. A scroll will be referred to in chapter 10 of Revelation, which could be this same scroll in the minds of many commentators, but it's the mystery of God that's being revealed. So what we can expect to see here is some exciting things. But before we get into this, I frequently have made the remark, and I would like to emphasize it tonight, is that you really can't understand Revelation chapter 5 unless you've done your homework in the book of Ruth. Time does not permit going through it carefully tonight, obviously. We have our hands full with this chapter. But I do encourage you, if you haven't done so recently, to make a careful study of this unusual little book in the Old Testament. It's four chapters long. It's regarded by even secular specialists in literature as one of the most elegant pieces of literature in the English language. Obviously not in English, it's Hebrew, but the point is it's, it's widely known, widely regarded among experts as an uh, elegant piece of literature. Book of Ruth, four chapters. The book has many, many values. One of the reasons you want to study it, it illuminates some background that you really need to have if you're going to understand the Old Testament. The time of the Book of Ruth is the time of the judges, that is before the monarchy and all of that. And it deals with practices that have their origin in the scripture that are foreign to our ears because we, we normally wouldn't get into this unless you study something like the book of Ruth. It turns out that uh, Naomi had a husband and two sons. There was famine in Bethlehem where they lived, so they left. They went to a Gentile country called Moab. And in that country, the two sons take wives. But ultimately, the husband dies, and so do both sons. So Naomi, the mother, is destitute. She has these two daughters-in-law that are Moabites. And by the time this, so ten years have gone by, by the time this all happens, she's going to return to Bethlehem. So she encourages these young girls to start a new life. Their husbands are dead, and they should return to their people. And they both decline to do that. And she t talks them into staying. She says, this is silly. I can't have more sons. And even if I did, by the time they were old enough, I mean, you know, she, she reasons in, in, a, in a very Jewish vernacular. If you read it, I wish I could do an accent thing when I, whenever I read that. But anyway, she, she argues that they should start new fresh lives. And one of them finally yields and stays. But Ruth insists upon staying with Naomi, her mother-in-law, in one of the most dramatic commitments and expressions of loyalty in the scriptures. Very elegant, beautiful bag. That's chapter one. They, they return to Bethlehem. When they get to Bethlehem, of course, Naomi now, of course, is returning to her people, but she's destitute. She's had nothing but hard times. And Ruth, her daughter-in-law, stays with her. In chapter two of the four chapters, they indulge 
in a practice that was prevalent in Israel called gleaning. If you owned a field and you harvested the field, you were allowed to pass through it once. Whatever you missed was supposed to be left for the widows and orphans. And they would come behind the reapers and gather what the reapers had missed, and that was their approach to welfare. And pursuant to this practice, Ruth, of course, does just that on behalf of herself and Naomi. And she happens on a field that's owned by a guy by the name of Boaz. And in my Bible, I take the word happens and put it in quotation marks because the rabbis will tell you that coincidence is not a kosher word. That God's hand is upon the situation. It's clear that even though Boaz is an older elder statesman, in fact, he might have, some speculate he might have been the mayor of the city, Ruth catches his eye, so he instructs his young men not to bother her. And in fact, he instructs them to drop a little extra on her behalf. So when Ruth gets home, Naomi is flabbergasted how much she's brought, and she realizes something's up. When she finds out that Ruth was gleaning in Boaz's field, as a good Jewish mother, the light goes on. What Naomi realizes is that Boaz is a kinsman of the family, and thus sets the plot of the story, but also sets the stage for you to get a grasp of what the law of redemption was all about that's in the Torah. First of all, when you sold a piece of ground in Israel, when we think of selling, we think of a, a transfer of title like fee simple, that it belongs to you and your heirs and assigns forever. That's what we take for granted in our culture. That was not true in Israel because the land belonged to God and he granted to Israel by tribe. And so when they speak of selling a piece of ground, what they really mean is what to enter into a transaction you and I would regard as a lease. What you purchased was the use of the ground. There was always had to be provision for the tribe, the kinsman of the seller, to be able to regain or reclaim or redeem the land. And that was typically the conditions for that were expressed on the outer part of the deed. And we'll see an example of that in Jeremiah here in a moment. Ten years earlier, when they sold the land, obviously they were destitute. They went to Moab. When they came back, the land belonged to others. But the fact that Boaz, this wealthy landowner, was a kinsman of Naomi, sets the opportunity, doesn't have to do this, but he has the opportunity, to redeem the land for Naomi. And so Naomi realizes that, but Naomi also realizes something else. There's another law. If a woman married a man and he passed away without issue which they had no children to the, to the family, the woman had the opportunity to go to his next of kin and request him to do the kinsman's part, which meant take her to wife and raise up seed on behalf of the dead husband. And so this all goes through Naomi's mind as she realizes that, that Ruth has happened on this wealthy landowner, and she can also tell that there's something going on here. So she instructs Ruth exactly what to do, which brings you to chapter 3 of the four-chapter book. In chapter 3, there's the, the, the thrashing floor scene. What they did, of course, is they, when they harvested, they had a thrashing floor, which was a piece of ground where there's a prevailing wind, and they typically would thrash the grain, and the wind would carry both the grain and the chaff, but the grain would fall, being heavier would fall short, the chaff would fall further down, so if you did this properly, you ended up with two piles. The first pile you'd bag for market, and the second pile you'd burn to get rid of the vermin. This would typically happen in the evening when the breeze would come up. Well, first of all, they always have a party, but then they'd also sleep there with the grain to prevent it being uh, stolen. So it's sort of a carnival atmosphere. In any case, Ruth, in under instruction, watches where Boaz goes to sleep in the middle of the night, slips in and sleeps at his feet. He wakes up and sees there's this young girl there. And there is a verse there that everybody misunderstands unless you have a background. Ruth asks him to put his skirt over her. 
And that sounds to the naive reader like she's propositioning him. But if you follow the text carefully, that's not at all what's going on. The, the hem of the skirt was the symbol of authority. God speaks of that with Israel, putting his skirt over Israel, his, putting his protection over The reason David cut the hem of Saul's armor, his, his, his badge of authority was in the hem. And there's a whole study you can do on hems. But keeping on with this main theme here, what she's asking Boaz to do, and it becomes clear by the subsequent verses, she's asking him to be her kinsman and re- take her to wife and raise up seed. And he's flattered as can be, of course, because she's attractive and young. But he points out to her he'd love to, except there's one closer in kinship, than he, they would have to stand aside first. There's also some codes in the book, and I won't get into all that right now. But the point is, what Boaz does the next morning at the city gate with all the council, he calls the guy that's an ear kinsman and says that Naomi has this land to be redeemed. The guy says, great, no problem, I'll be glad to do it. Which, if you're watching the story, you sort of wince, because that's not the result you want. I always figure if you're going to do a movie of this, you would cast... You know, uh, Kevin Costner is somebody in the role of Boaz. He's the kinsman redeemer. And you'd have Danny DeVita as the, you know, the guy. In... So, but, um, but then Boaz says, by the way, if you're going to do that, you also have, whoever does it also has to take Ruth to wife. And the guy declines. He, for some undisclosed reason, he can't perform that. He can't do that, which is wonderful news. And so uh, that clears the deck for Boaz to do two things simultaneously. To return the land to Naomi by redeeming the land, and to take the wife. And the final chapter 4 is full of discoveries. There's a prediction in the time of the judges that David would be king. That shocks a lot of experts. David was not an afterthought after Saul. He was foreordained to be king. And uh, that's typified by this interesting closure in the book of Ruth. But as you get into the book of Ruth, the reason this is so important, you need to understand what redemption is. Because first of all, you'll discover some interesting, Boaz becomes a type or a model or an example of what's called in Hebrew a goel, a kinsman redeemer. And there are four situations. First of all, he has to be a kinsman. Secondly, he has to be able to perform. Thirdly, he has to be willing to perform. It's not forced on him. And fourth, he has to assume all the obligations of the redeemed. Those four things. Boaz, of course, agrees to do that. And so he returns the land to Naomi. He takes a Gentile bride. Thus becomes not only an example of the law, but it becomes a prophecy in a sense. Because Boaz becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now what most people are puzzled, how can Boaz take a Moabite for bride that's expressly prohibited in the Torah? And the only way you can do that is by grace, of course. But it helps to understand who Boaz's mother was. That was Rahab, the harlot. Most people don't realize that. Boaz thus becomes an example in the Old Testament of the Goel. Now, if you study the book of Ruth, you'll discover one thing after another. You'll find hundreds of interesting insights when you realize that Naomi is a type of Israel. And Ruth, of course, is a type of the church. And it's interesting that Ruth learns about how all this works from Naomi. But Naomi learns about Boaz through Ruth. And it's interesting that as Ruth was at his feet in the thrashing floor scene, the thrashing floor is often idiom in the Old Testament for the tribulation, by the way. Where is Ruth at the tribulation? At, at the feet of Boaz. Kind of interesting. But also, no matter how much he loved her, it was her move. See, no matter how much Christ loves you, it's, you have to accept it. It's your move. You have to uh, receive him. So you can, you can really make a study of this. It's interesting that um, the Feast of Pentecost is of the seven feasts of Moses, the feast that points to the church. It's interesting that to this day, the Jews, at the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost, they read the book of Ruth. And I think that's interesting. It's one of the most important pro- prophecy books in the Old Testament that prophesies the church. One other thing I might mention, and I'll do this quickly because of time, 
you'll discover in Jeremiah 32, there's an interesting event. Jeremiah is instructed to purchase a piece of ground. Now, this is a very strange assignment. Jeremiah knows that the Babylonians are about to take them all captives. And he also knows that they're going to be captives for 70 years. Yet God tells him to go buy this piece of ground. And it gives you all the details there, how they take the title deeds and they hide that in, an, in a, a jar and plant it in the ground. What it doesn't complete, what's implied, obviously, is 70 years later when the captivity is over, Jeremiah's descendants will come and redeem the ground by performing the details on the title deed. And so it also is another example of this idea of the title deed. And I'll leave you to study that on your own in Jeremiah 32 at your leisure. But we're really going to enter the ultimate mystery thriller here because we have a very strange thing. We have this scroll in the hand of God on the throne. That should get our attention. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? This is a strong, mighty, powerful angel. He'll show up again, I think, in Revelation 10 and Revelation 18. In Revelation 10, the scroll there is talking about the mystery of God being accomplished, being completed. Now, one of the things that lurks behind this whole episode we're going to watch here is a question. Can man solve his own problems? You know, everybody wants a utopia. Everybody has a concept of it. No one knows how to get it. And the history of mankind is the frustrating effort of man to try to achieve this, always with failure. How do we end war, crime, evil, prejudice, injustice? No one really knows. Everybody has theories. None of them have worked. In spite of our technological progress to this day in mankind, the human race has never seen more suffering than is going on in our day. And it's never been in greater peril of being wiped out than we are at this time. So despite all our would-be progress, we're in greater jeopardy as a race than we ever have been since Adam. Now the mystery of God is about to unfold with the answer to all of this. But it's interesting, it's going to require some very strange, very special qualifications to respond. The angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And verse 3 explains this, and no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll, neither look on it. See, it required a man. It had to be a kinsman of Adam. You see, the kinsman idea is lurking right here. And only an appointed heir can open the will or title deed. Now, you recognize the Goel, the, the kinsman-redeemer model here. You should also bear in mind that the Goel was not only the kinsman-redeemer, he was also the avenger of blood. If someone in the family was murdered, he was the avenger of blood that made restitution. So we see the Goel, the, this kinsman-redeemer idea that's a popular idiom among us, has that coin has two sides, if you will. Now, uh, kind of interesting here, they look for inventory, the inventory men, in three places. In heaven? That must mean there's some men in heaven, huh? At this time. That's kind of interesting. In the earth? And under the earth. I'll leave that with you just to think about. Kind of interesting. Verse 4. John says, I sobbed convulsively. Or in the King James says, I wept much. Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the scroll, neither to look thereon. 
See, you and I might be confused about what's going on here. John was not. He understood the significance that no one was qualified to take title to this. And John understood it. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, it talks about the entire creation groaning for its redemption. You and I think of being redeemed ourselves, and indeed that we are, praise God. But one of the things that you want to put in the back of your mind, from the book of Isaiah and also from the book of Revelation, you'll discover the climax is a new heaven and a new earth. Kind of interesting. There's far more going on here than most people realize. There are far more things involved with the so-called rapture of the church than most people realize. Most people are confused about the rapture because it's a a function of ecclesiology, not eschatology. But let us keep moving. Verse 5. So the situation is desperate. Here's Here's the scroll. Who is worthy? No one's worthy. And everybody's shook up. But fortunately, verse 5, we have an important exception, an important footnote, as it were. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals thereof. It's interesting that one of the elders is doing the explaining. One of the elders. And I think we've talked about this before in chapter 4, but let me emphasize again. There are many good scholars with different views. I'm among those that happen to believe the 24 elders are the representatives of the church because they are kings and priests. And there's only three people that are kings and priests. Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, and the author of the book of Romans makes a big thing of that issue. And, of course, those that are joint heirs with him, namely the redeemed. And the fact that these elders are kings and priests is important. I might mention something else that I find rather provocative. It turns out that if you study the book of Revelation, the three chapters up till now, bear in mind the church was was caught up to heaven, chapter 4, verse 1, in our view. The first three chapters, you'll discover there are titles of Jesus Christ. When you count those titles of Jesus Christ, guess how many there are? Twenty-four. Twenty-four. No, seven. Very good. Good guess. Good guess. Twenty-four. Twenty-four. See, these titles in the first three chapters are applying to him and his present role as revealed to the church. From now on, we're going to see Jewish titles. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David. The Lamb that was slain. These are Jewish titles. You'll discover in the book of Revelation, Israel is going to come back to center stage, just as God predicted all through the Old Testament it would. And as the end of human history approaches, God is going to deal with the world through Israel as he indicated he would all along. And all of earth's history is coming to a climax. And right in the center of it will be the nation Israel. And one of the important things you need to do in your Bible study is be alert to distinguish between Israel and the church. There are many people today that attempt to confuse those two. The earthly promises to Israel are about to be fulfilled. The Holy Spirit refers to Israel 73 times in the New Testament, and each time... It is referring to national Israel. I'll give you an example. Look at chapter 9, verses 3 and 4 as uh, perhaps the best example. It's interesting in the Old Testament, book of Daniel, Daniel 7, when you see the throne of God, you see many of the same things we see in Revelation, but there's something very obvious that's missing. The thrones are there, but the elders are not there. You see, and Paul explains that in Ephesians 3, that what was hidden in the Old Testament is this mystery called the church. And it fascinates me to see how precise the Holy Spirit is, because in the Old Testament, you see the throne of God, you don't see the 24 elders. And yet, uh, uh, it's interesting how consistent that is. Also, you'll notice, many people think the elders are some kind of super angels or something. No, the elders are distinguished from the angels in chapter 5 and also in chapter 7 and elsewhere. So, uh, we won't stumble on that issue. 
Verse 5. One of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. And we're now approaching probably the most dramatic event in the book of Revelation. It's the emergence of the Lamb of God at the center of the stage. Now, all these titles are, of course, Jewish. The lion is first mentioned in Jacob's blessing to his twelve sons. In Genesis 49, he speaks of Judah, the lion's whelp, and so forth. But you'll find this title all through the Old Testament, take it in accordance. It'll take it to Hosea 5.14, Hebrews 7.14, elsewhere. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Very familiar title of Jesus Christ, but recognizes Jewishness. Recognizes Jewishness. He's the root of David. Now, it's interesting. This comes from Isaiah 11.1 1 and Jeremiah 23 and a lot of other places. It's kind of interesting. Jesus was the source of David's line, and yet he's also the result of it. You see? And he uses that event, which is summarized in Psalm 110, to confuse the Pharisees. Okay, let's turn to Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, verse 41, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them... <laughs> You know, I, I love some of the interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees. <laughs> well, let's keep on. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now, Christ is a title. He's to realize. Whose son is he? They said unto him, The son of David. And Jesus said unto them, How then doth David in the Spirit call him Lord? saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither dared any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. (laughs) They've been going at it through chapter 22, but then Jesus gives them a little question, you see. And so they're sitting there chewing on it. Just a scripture question, you know. How can Jesus be the son of David? You see, and yet David called him Lord. By the way, the point of this actually is a demonstration that in the Old Testament that the Messiah was indeed to be the supernatural member of the Godhead. And there are many passages of that, but they're subtle. And this is an example that Jesus uses, of course, to confound the Pharisees. But again, this whole idea that he's the root of David. He's not only the son of David, he's the root of David. Do you see the difference? And yet they're the same in a sense. Now, in God's covenant with David, David's line was to rule the entire earth. You'll find that in 2 Samuel 7, if you study the promises God made to David in 2 Samuel 7. That promise is not just Old Testament. Gabriel confirmed that to Mary in Luke chapter 1. So people who have a problem with Israel re-emerging politically, with Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of the earth... Better look very carefully at what Gabriel promised Mary in Luke chapter 1. That's not an Old Testament idea. It's confirmed in the New Testament. Of course, if you really understand your Bible, there's no difference. It's one book, 66 books, but one message, one integrated message. What we're seeing here in Revelation, of course, is this is all climaxing. You might turn with it. Let me remind you about Psalm 2. Let's pop back and just refresh our memory a little bit with the second psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Aha, there's two of them at least. Saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. This is the nations of the earth are going to cast, you know, God's controls over them. Ha ha. 
Well, verse 4, it says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his great displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. Zion is a synonym for Jerusalem. God is going to set his king on Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He paid for it on a cross. Has he taken possession? Not yet. That's what we're going to watch happen from chapter 5 on. Wild stuff coming up. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. Okay, back to Revelation chapter 5. Oh, one thing about this titling. I have to share something with you. It was uh, published in our newsletter recently, but I, I have to share it with you. We have here in Revelation a couple of these titles that refer to the king of the Jews, the lion of the tribe of, of Judah and the, and the uh, root of David. It's interesting that this title, the king of the Jews, is the title that Pilate put on the cross, which you might call an epitaph. You may recall that when he wrote it and put it on the epitaph, the Pharisees were upset about that. that re- they wanted him to reword it, remember? And he says, what I have written, I have written. He refused to reword it. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, is what he wrote. And it was written, of course, in Hebrew, but also Greek and Latin. And then the chief priests, and, uh, you know, asked him to change it, and he said, what I've written, I've written. That's in John 19, for those who want to look it up later. And now, he refused to reword it. It's kind of interesting. This may have much more significance than most people realize, because your Bible's in English. But bear in mind, it was written in Hebrew and then Greek and Latin. Now, it's kind of interesting. You might be interested to see what it looks like in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it goes from right to left, remember. Yeshua Hanatzerai Vimelech Yahudim. Ha Yehudim. It goes that way, okay? Now, what makes this interesting, what you don't notice in the English, is that if you make an acrostic of the first letter of each of those four words in the Hebrew, it spells the Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, the name of God of the Old Testament. Now, there's several possibilities. This might have just been an accident. Ah, you're getting the message. Or, Pilate might have just done it to put the needle into the Pharisees. But I'm kind of interested because I notice, I don't know if he knew this or if it was deliberate, but I noticed something else. A couple of days later when they came to get permission to post a guard at the tomb, he said, make it as sure as you can. Strange remark. You get the impression between his wife's dreams and all these other problems that he's beginning to suspect there may be more at hand than he had realized. And with the darkness and the earthquake and what have you, for him to express it this way may have been more than just a cynical needle of the Pharisees. Maybe Pilate was beginning to get an inkling that something was up. And when they wanted to guard the tomb, maybe it was with a certain fatalism that he shrugged it off. Make it as sure as you can, as if, we'll see, guys. I, you know, I think that's interesting. We see the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed. And that's exactly what Isaiah 53 uh, details for us. Verse 6. 
And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood the Lamb as it had been slain. Very interesting thing. You see, often they visualize that he came as a lamb in his first coming. And he's a lion in the second coming. The lamb and the lion. It's interesting that the first title that John the Baptist uses of Jesus Christ publicly is, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's a Passover phrase. Now, interestingly enough, in all the other places in the New Testament, the word is amnos in the Greek, as in John 1 and Peter, 1 Peter 1 and Acts 8 and elsewhere. But it's interesting that the word here is the word arneon, which is the same word that Jeremiah uses, where he says, I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. It seems that even the choice of the Greek word seems to emphasize that we have a lamb, yes, but the lamb as it had been slain. And uh, those of you that might be interested in this, I think all of us, of course, are familiar with the nail prints in his hands and the wound in his side nail prints in his feet. Someone has once quipped that the only man-made things in heaven are scars. It's interesting that from the moment after his crucifixion, from that point on, only loving hands touched him and only loving eyes saw him. But it's also interesting to notice that in his resurrection body, after the resurrection, we notice something very strange. They all seem to have trouble recognizing him. Mary didn't recognize him in the garden, thought he was the gardener. The Emmaus Road disciples walked seven miles with him, didn't recognize him until he broke bread and saw his nail prints. In the upper room, they were startled, but they were also frightened. Why? Up in Galilee, when they encounter him that morning after a night's of fishing, and they had breakfast with him, John makes that strange remark. None of us dared ask him who he was because we, we knew it was him. What does it mean? What's going on? Well, we discover from the Old Testament that the abuse on his face is far more brutal than the New Testament records. We also know from Isaiah 50, verse 6, that they ripped off his beard. And maybe one of the things that gave everybody a problem there in those early days after the resurrection is that they saw scar tissue where there had been a beard. And maybe that's why Mary had a problem until she heard his voice. Maybe that's why the Emmaus Road disciples didn't realize who was giving him this Bible study until they saw him break bread and saw the nail prints. And maybe that's why they were so frightened. It's interesting that whatever was going on, and that's just a conjecture, of course, it's interesting we see him here in Revelation 5, the lamb as it had been slain. I personally suspect that the physical parts, of course, are trivial compared to what he really endured on your, your behalf and mine, but I also believe that you and I will spend an eternity discovering what it cost him to perform what he's about to perform here on our behalf. If you want more background on this, we have a briefing package that goes into this whole resurrection thing called From Here to Eternity, if you want to study this more carefully. We see in the same verse that he describes us having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth to all the earth. These are idioms that are a little strange. Don't try to paint this in a, in a, in a sketch. The horns are a symbol of power in Deuteronomy 22, oh, a lot of verses, all through the Old Testament. It's a symbol of power and honor because the horn was typically the measure of power of an animal. So it becomes idiomatic of power in general. And having seven horns means he has complete power, complete authority. That's what's, what's involved here. And the seven eyes are here identified as the seven spirits of God. We find these same idioms used in Zechariah 3, verse 8, and 4, verse 10. In the, spirit, in the interest of time, I'll let you look those up. 
on your own. Let's go to verse 7. And he, and he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Now, boy, that's access. Can you imagine going up, taking the scroll? The reason he can is because of his declaration on the cross. It is finished, paid in full, to Telestai. The result of him taking this causes an interesting reaction, which consumes the rest of the chapter. It's the ultimate chorus. What we're going to see here in the scripture is the ultimate chorus of praise for the rest of this chapter. So heaven's going to be revealed as the, uh, to earth as the homeland of music. And we're going to see the, the greatest chorus of praise, and we're going to see the, what I call the ultimate fortissimo here. Verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden bowls full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Now it's interesting, all through the scripture you'll discover that incense and odors are used idiomatically of prayers. We'll find this occur not only here, of course, but in Revelation chapter 8. In uh, Psalm 141, verse 2, there are lots of places that you can quickly, with a concordance, track that down. And uh, it's interesting, when he had taken, the word had taken is the arrow's tense. It's a completed action, once and for all. What we're going to see happen now is the first of three waves of praise. This first wave, we're going to see, has the four living creatures and the 24 elders. We're going to see him worshipped for, well, probably at least three things. First of all, for who he is. That's one of our greatest challenges as we study our scripture, is to try to understand just who he really is. And we indulge in so many convenient cliches. The Son of God. He's a member of the Godhead. He's the creator of the universe. Genesis 1 and John 1, first few verses. Colossians. Hammers away at it. He's worshipped for who he is. He's being worshipped for where he is. He's not in the manger. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's at the center of the throne of God. That's where he is right now, as we study this here in this room. What he's doing right now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and I. Wow, what an advocate we have with the Father. When someone accuses you, he's there to defend you. And he's got the court wired, you know. What we're seeing here, though, is where he's changing roles. That's why I believe the church is in heaven. Because he's standing up and he's going to take possession of that which he purchased some 2,000 years earlier. And, of course, he's also being praised for what he does. Who he is, where he is, and what he does. Now, we're going to notice here that they have harps. I'm kind of intrigued on the emphasis of harps. They seem to be the instrument of the prophets. And of course, they are instrument of praise throughout the Psalms. And just as the harp strings vibrate in harmony, so the whole of creation is going to start vibrating in harmony with Him. It always interests me, too, if you take a concordance, I took my computer and checked it out, it always speaks of an instrument of ten strings. And I find that so fascinating. 
Because Nachmanides, in, uh, 800 years ago, in his commentary the book of Genesis, chapter 1, concluded that the universe has ten dimensions. Four are measurable, six are unknowable. And the reason that echoes in my ears, of course, is because particle physicists today, as they try to struggle with our understanding of reality, have discovered our universe consists of ten dimensions. Four are measurable, length, width, height, and time, and six of them are curled in less than ten to the minus thirty-three centimeters, and thus are inferable only by indirect means. But also they believe that all particles, that we all the subatomic particles, are basically vibrations of ten-dimensional strings. And I, I find that interesting. I wonder that may be just a coincidence, and yet it intrigues me that all of creation is going to praise God, and the idiom of that in the praise worship is an instrument of ten strings. I just think that's kind of interesting. If you're interested in getting in that sort of thing, we have a briefing package called Beyond Perception, which attempts to relate the views of particle physics with the Bible, and it's kind of fun. The bowls of incense. Now, this is interesting. You know, all through the Scripture, bowls of incense are idiomatic of prayers. Now, it's interesting that these prayers are here being presented to Him. If you think it through now, that means that we, as the redeemed, are participants in this. It's our prayers that are being presented. That's wild to think that you can be partnered with God. If you're praying in the Spirit, then that's God's way of enlisting you into what He's doing. Prayer is a method that God uses to enlist you in what He is doing. That's part of what we're seeing. What we're seeing here is part of what we pray for when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. What do we mean by that? This, what's going on here from chapter 6 on, the big climax. Let's get down to verse 9. Now this group, the, the four living creatures, the cherubim, whatever, and the 24 elders are singing now, verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for Thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now there are some manuscript disputes. There are a couple of manuscripts that have this in the third person have redeemed them, but it's turning out the best scholarship endorses this idea that they are speaking personally. These elders are saying that thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of what? Out of every kindred, tongue, and people and nation. Don't be confused. There's a lot more going to be saved yet, but this is a special group that uh, is emerging here. We're going to see later on in the book some other, several, several other groups that are identified. But here we have these redeemed out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. In verse 10, And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, or a kingdom of priests, and we shall reign upon the earth. The redeemed are going to reign with Him. Wild stuff. Wild stuff. Now, the us here, the redeemed, also will come up in Revelation 13. We'll talk about it then. This phrase, a new song, turns out not to be unique here. It's all through the Psalms. Psalm 33, Psalm 40, 98, uh, 96, 144, 149. But this is really much closer to Isaiah 42, verses 9 and 10, which declares the new creation. One of the characteristics of the book of Revelation is the number of things that it declares that are new. We have a new name. Jesus mentioned, remember, in chapter 2 and 3 in the seven letters, twice we have him allude to a new name. We have the New Jerusalem alluded to in chapter 3, and of course it's a climactic event in chapter 21. We have the new song here, and we'll also see a new song in chapter 14. And of course, as I indicated, we'll have new heavens declared in chapter 21. 
and a new earth, also in chapter 21. In fact, 21 also declares all things new, and we'll talk more about that. It's kind of interesting, the Greek has two words for new. One is called neos, which is a new in point of time, but not necessarily in quality. It's a thing which has been recently produced, but may be only a specimen of the previous. That's what the word neos means. The word here is kainos, which means new in point of quality, a thing of like of the like which has never existed before. That's the term being used here. And, of course, our life in Christ represents a new joy, a new thrill, a new strength, a new peace, and uh, which Christless eyes have never seen or can't understand. J. Vernon McGee made an interesting remark as I was combing the other commentaries, see what views were held here. J. Vernon McGee points out that in many churches they are deleting references to the blood of Christ in their hymnals. They're embarrassed by some of these old-fashioned ideas. And J. Vernon McGee suggests perhaps that's why the Lord isn't going to embarrass them by taking them into heaven because, <laughs> because they would have to sing about the blood up there. See? The redeemed are singing and praising about the blood of Christ here. Because our slain has redeemed us to God by thy blood. Remember, that's what the gospel is all about. What is the God? We use the term all the time. What's the gospel? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses, he says, This is the gospel that I declare unto you, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Point being, he didn't just disappear, and he didn't just die. He died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. There was a procedure he was following. There was a requirement he was fulfilling. Secondly, he was buried. The authorities of that day made sure there'd be no doubt about that. And they also documented clearly the tomb later was empty. How good of the Roman and Hebrew authorities to make that so well documented. They died for our sins according to Scripture. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day. Again, according to the Scriptures. What's fascinating about that definition of the Gospel is what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't talk about his teachings. doesn't talk about his miracles. Doesn't talk about his examples. Many groups be glad to acknowledge those, but they deny the gospel. Every cult, every deviant group attacks the deity of Christ to get away from those three points that he died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to scriptures. And here in the book of Revelation, that's the core of his performance, that's the basis of his qualification to take the book that he's a kinsman of Adam and that he's prevailed. That he's performed. Praise God. And thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign upon the earth. And to point out, there's only three groups of people that are both kings and priests. Melchizedek was, and he's unique for that, as the writer of Hebrews amplifies. And of course, Jesus Christ is after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. In, in, in Israel, you had the tribe of Levi, the priests, tribe of Judah, royalty. Royalty and priests were uh, forever divided, separate roles. But Jesus is not after that order. He's after the order of Melchizedek, which preceded all of that. And, of course, the other ones that are in that category of members of his body, namely the church, as, as amplified in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and will again come up in chapter 20, verse 6. So this praise here sums up for you and I the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ in our behalf. And it's about four things. It was a sacrificial death. It had purpose in it. It was not an accident of history. It was designed before it was designed before Adam was created, because God knew Adam would blow it. It was an emancipating death. It frees us from the bondage of sin. Was, his life was a ransom, freeing us from the bondage of sin. 
It was universal in its benefits. Every tribe, tongue, people, and race are here declared. So it's universal. And of course, it's an availing death. It's made us kings. It's opened us, opened us to us the royalty of God. Man's humanity becomes clad with the royalty of God's divinity because of this death. Secondly, it avails because he makes us priests. See, in the ancient world, only a priest had the right to approach God. When a Jew entered a temple, you know, he could make his way through the court of the Gentiles. He could make his way through the court of women. And he would get to the court of the Israelites. But to the court of the priests, he could not go. From that, That's as close as he could get. The priests uh, would, uh, he could go there no further. Now, of course, the veil is, is rent. You and I have access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. So we're pre- in that sense, you see, we have the priesthood. And, of course, he's also given us a third availing, if you will, kings, priests, and also triumph. Because through him we have triumph over ourselves, over sin, over the flesh. Victory over self, victory over circumstance, victory over sin, through him. Notice, by the way, it's not in his eternal character as Yahweh that he receives his worship. He receives his worship as the Lamb. That's the basis. Notice also the believers will reign on the earth. A lot of people argue about that. Hey, it's right here. Believers will reign over the earth. Jesus promised his own that they would rule with him in Matthew 19, Luke 22, 2 Timothy 2, and lots of other places. Let's, let's keep moving. Verse 11. We've had the first wave of praise, the four, the four cherubim and the, four, and the 24 elders. Now a second wave hits it. Verse 11. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels. See, they're distinct from the elders. So many angels round about the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Angels cannot be numbered. Angels cannot be numbered. Tells us elsewhere. And by the way, this, this praise is very reminiscent of 1 Chronicles 29. David's praise in 1 Chronicles 29, for those that you may want to study it. You know, angels kind of interesting. We find from Peter that they have an intense interest in the plan of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, he says that the angels fasten their attention upon the Scriptures. And they understand God's plan by watching it unfold through us. So they're watching us. You get that impression that they're taking delight in every move as it gets revealed, as God's plan gets revealed uh, in us. Verse 12. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Wow. Seven possessions here elevated. Power. Well, there are lots of verses there. See, he's not one that can dream and not realize. He's not one that plans but does not, cannot achieve. He's able. He has ultimate power. And I won't go through all the scriptures. That's, they'll be in the notes. Riches. Boy, all the riches are his. The scriptures, 2 Corinthians 8 and Ephesians 3 and elsewhere. There's no claim on him that he cannot satisfy. No promise that he cannot carry out. Wow. What a benefactor. How often we have someone we rely on that makes a commitment and then we discover for whatever reasons they can't make that, they can't fulfill it. Not in his case. And of course he has wisdom. All wisdom. Psalm 8, 1 Corinthians one twenty four, James one five. Both secrets and practical knowledge. He has all strength. He can even disarm the powers of evil and Satan, which is some ultimate measure, I imagine. Honor before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord indeed. 
and glory. And I won't go through all the verses in the interest of time here. Which is His alone. And finally, blessing, the inevitable climax of it all. And He pours it out on all of us, you and I. Wow. Verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth. There is that three level again. Every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Wow. Every creature. Every creature. You say, what about animals? Hosea chapter 2, verse 18, Ezekiel 34, verse 27, Isaiah 65, 25, all seem to imply that the every living creature, praise God. I think some of you know that uh, one of my daughters is a real animal rights, animal rights advocate and is convinced that there are animals in heaven. Well, he rides one, rides a horse coming back, right? I came home one day and I says, I've studied it carefully and I know there are going to be cats in heaven. He says, really, Dad? I says, of course. Where else would they get the strings for the harps? <laughs> Nine strings, right? Well, she almost hit me, and I don't blame her. I kind of wonder about this, though. I wonder which creatures are under the earth. That intrigues me. Look at that Philippians 2.10, if you like. What you notice, though, that God and the Lamb are joined together in, in the, they both receive and share this praise. So we have three levels, and this is the third level, of course. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Right on. Forever and ever. That's the duration of the Father's rule, and it's the duration of the elders' worship. The elders' worship. And we're going to uh, encounter this, of course, three times in this book. If you want to elaborate on this more, I encourage you to read the last five Psalms in the book of Psalms. Psalm 146, 47, 48, 49, 50. In other words, from Psalm 146 to 150, essentially expresses much of these ideas. This is all a prelude. Four and five are the throne of God getting ready for chapters 6 through 19, which constitute from our point of view at least, the next major section of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has a divinely inspired outline in verse 19 of chapter 1. Write the things which thou hast seen, that was the vision of chapter 1. Write the things which are, the seven letters, seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which shall be metatauta, after these things. And chapter 4, verse 1 begins with that very Greek phrase, metatauta. So the rest of the book is the third section. But we'll discover chapters 20, 21, 22 are really a natural unit beyond 19. So 6 through 19, 4, 4 and 5 set the stage for 6 through 19 where he's going to take possession of that which he purchased. You'll also discover that chapters 6 through 19 are the amplification of a very specific period of time. One of the things you've already probably noticed in chapters 4 and 5 is the shifting from church idioms to Jewish idioms. We find that all the 24 titles were used in chapters 1, 2, and 3. From here, now we notice the, the, you know, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb. These are very Jewish titles. They relate to Jewish things. They're very Old Testament in their roots here. 
We're going to discover as the coming chapters unfold, we're going to find 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to discover again and again and again the emergence of Israel, very tangibly, very specifically identified in the proceedings. So for next time, or as we get into the rest of this book, there's some background that I encourage you to absorb. The most important prophecy in the Old Testament that lays the foundation for all end-time prophecy are the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel gives Daniel a very short, precise prophecy that contains the clues to all of end time, the end-time climax. And they, they constitute four verses at the close of Daniel chapter 9. And I strongly urge you to review. If you've studied before, review it. If you haven't studied before, I encourage you to try to uh, uh, glean what you can prior to our next meeting. The four verses, 24, 25, 26, and 27 of Daniel 9. Verse 24 is the scope of the whole thing. And you'll notice from that scope, it's specifically directed at Daniel's people in the city of Jerusalem, that is the Jews. It's Jewish. It's not to the church. It's Jewish. You'll discover that what is laid out there are 77s of years. 77s of years. You and I would presume, in the absence of other information, that they're contiguous. We'll discover that 69 are, but there's an interval between the 69th and the 70th. That's a strange idea. But you'll notice it's very express in the, in the prophecy. Chapter 20, verse 24 is the scope of the whole thing. Verse 25 deals with 69 of those weeks. And from, from a specific decree until the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah the King, will be uh, 69 weeks of years. And, of course, it, the, the dramatic discovery is that on Palm Sunday, the only time that Jesus allowed himself to be presented as a king to Jerusalem was the very day that Gabriel had predicted. In fact, Jesus in Luke 19 holds them accountable to understand that. It says Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. That day was mathematically predicted by Gabriel, and it's a dramatic study. I encourage you to, to undertake that study. The last of the four verses describes the remaining week. 69 are taken care of. There's one left. But there's a verse between the two, verse 26, which describes some events that occur after the 69th but before the 70th starts. And the events that are listed there specifically include at least 38 years. Of course, through history, we've discovered it's, it's more like 1900 and something. But the point is, all of end-time prophecy can be organized by, those that, by that passage. And we'll discover there is a period of time that the Bible talks about that some scholars call the 70th week of Daniel. That is this 70th period, this remaining unfulfilled seven-year period. It's, been, it's divided in the middle by a very specific event. The two halves of that seven-year period are called three and a half years, several places, called 42 months in several places, called 1260 days. In other words, the Holy Spirit has done everything but rendered into microseconds to describe it to you. And so in days, months, weeks, whatever. So the point is, you want to understand that because you'll discover that Revelation from chapter 6 through 19 is an amplification of the dramatic events that will happen in that particular period of time. That period of time has, is more specifically enumerated in Scripture than any other period of time in history. Not surprisingly, it's God's climax. So I encourage you to uh, review all of that before next time. Secondly, I also encourage you 
to read Matthew chapter 24. Four disciples came to Jesus privately for a confidential briefing on his second coming. And he described to them an answer, gave them an answer that takes two chapters in the Bible. It's it's so important it's recorded in three Gospels. Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and 14, Luke 21 and 22. We'll, We'll focus on Matthew 24 as the exemplar of the three. But it describes a series of events that will occur at this time. And we're going to see some fascinating interconnection between Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 6. So we'll explore that next time. We're going to see then in the, next, in the coming chapters of the book of Revelation that our kinsman redeemer is going to take possession of that which he purchased. And uh, Psalm 2 you might reread at your leisure too and recognize it's a, it's a discussion between the three members of the Godhead. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are talking among themselves in Psalm 2. You might reread it and try to diagram it for yourself. The day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Yeshua is indeed Jesus Christ, the Lord. There will be no exceptions. Some of us will do so gladly because we have appropriated the sacrifice of the kinsman redeemer for our own eternal lives. Others are going to be forcibly, uh, will forcibly confess. They'll do it reluctantly. They'll confess his lordship. Those who scoff at his scriptures, who ridicule biblical morality, and who persecute godly people, will one day be made to see that they are wrong and that their lives have been wasted. When all the illusions and delusions upon which they base their lives have been stripped away, They'll have no choice but to join the rest of creation in openly confessing that Yeshua indeed is Lord indeed. You will confess His Lordship, and so will I. There'll be no exceptions. When that moment comes, will your hearts be full of joy and gladness, or will they be filled with regret? It's not a choice for the future. It's a choice that we make today. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come before your throne in awe of you and in awe that you would reveal to us this coming climax. We thank you, Father, for the visibility, for the awareness of what you are about to do. And above all, Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, that you have gone to these extremes that we might live. Father, we come before your throne acknowledging our need for a Savior. We come before your throne acknowledging our own unworthiness and incapability. We thank you, Father, that you've prepared a destiny that's so fantastic there's nothing we could do to earn it, but rather just receive it as a gift from you. We thank you, Father, that you have paid the price for our unworthiness. You've paid the price to make us perfect in Jesus Christ so that we might indeed enjoy eternal fellowship with you. But, Father, we come before your throne with a petition. We pray, Father, that you would, through, the, through your Holy Spirit, increase in each one of us an awareness 
and a hunger for your word. That we each might learn more of what you have, have, what you have done for us and what you are about to do. We ask all these things, Father, that each of us might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And further, Father, that we each might be more responsive to your will in our lives right now, that we indeed, through the ministry of your Spirit, might bear more effective testimony of your truth. For, Father, we commit ourselves into your hands right now. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.